Amen. How many of you are glad to be in the house of God tonight? Amen. Anybody been praying the last seven days, circling the promises of God? Amen. Tonight we're going to pick up on the second lesson of the circle maker. And last week we talked about the power of a single prayer. How many of you remember we're supposed to spell it out? Somebody say spell it out. I hope you've been praying that way. Tonight we're going to talk about dream big. Somebody turn to your neighbor and say dream big. Have you ever noticed that the people who see miracles have a different attitude and outlook concerning what is possible with God? Um, they, they tend to see the world in a different lens than those of us who are skeptics. They are the people who are willing to start a business in their garage. The people that believe that the improbable is entirely attainable. They're the people who pray and expect things that the rest of us don't pray and expect. Amen? Anybody know someone like that? Um, I want to start off tonight by saying there's an awesome power in believing beyond the borders of what is possible. We call them dreamers. We call them visionaries. We call them innovators. But the Bible calls them believers. They are people who are fully convinced that a miracle can happen. When Jesus was met by a man whose son had a lifelong issue, he had a message for him about the power of belief in Mark chapter 9. His son has been fighting a devil that the Bible says has oft tried to destroy him. And so he asked Jesus for help. He says many times it's thrown him into the fire in Mark 9.22. It's thrown him into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, he says, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, what a scripture to start off with tonight. He said, if you can believe. Everything is possible to the one who believes. Somebody say, if you can believe, it's possible. Jesus was telling him that the only thing that was standing between his son and a miracle was his own faith. If you can believe, it is possible. He had been facing the same problem for many years, had tried and exhausted every solution, had brought his son to the disciples and they couldn't help him. And he was at his wit's end, ready to give in to the thought that some things might never change. But Jesus responds by simply saying, if you can believe it, all things are possible. Tonight, our greatest challenge is not our issue. It's not our struggle. It's not the thing that we're praying about. Our greatest challenge is our attitude. Because our capacity to uh, receive a miracle has less to do with our issues and circumstances and has more to do with our faith. And so, in order to receive from God, you have to be able to believe God. And, and the first point I want to make tonight is that circle makers are risk takers. Somebody say that. Circle makers are risk takers. Believers. The kind of people who are crazy enough to think that persistent diseases... And unchanging problems will go away in an instant. They are the Noahs who say, sure God, I'll build a boat even though I've never seen the rain. They're the Davids who say, sure, I'll stand up and face the giant. They are the Israelites who say, sure God, I'll walk around these walls fully expecting them to fall down. They are the Gideons who say, yes Lord, I will fight thousands with just 300 men. They are the Peters who say, hey, Jesus, I want to walk on water, too. Some people think they're crazy. 
Some people think they've lost their minds. And yet, Noah built a boat and it rained. David faced a giant and he fell. The Israelites marched around the walls and they fell. Gideon fought a handful, or fought with a handful and defeated a multitude. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water with Jesus. Hear me tonight that, that in order to really receive from God when we pray, we must learn to pray believing. James says that the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. It shall save the sick. And, and, and sometimes I think our biggest issue is our approach to prayer. We're, we're kind of squinting and, and putting out a hand just in case God might want to do something. But I'm here talking about believers. Because believers take a step. They put it all out there on the line for God. They trust God in circumstances and take risks that non-believers won't take. Before the first raindrop fell, think about it. Honey, the man in the legend in the circle maker, had to feel foolish. He was standing inside of a circle demanding rain from God. And that's a risky proposition because what if it doesn't rain? You know how we are when, when we think church might go too long. I know some of y'all are already worried at 726 and I just started. <laughs> but it's a risky proposition because Honey goes into the circle, but he doesn't know when he's coming out. He's putting everything on the line. He's putting his freedom on the line. He's saying, God, I'm not stepping out of this circle until you move. Vowing that you won't leave the circle until it rains is risky. And, and get this, he didn't draw a semicircle. He drew a complete circle. There was no escape clause. There was no expiration date. He literally backed himself into a circle and the only way out for him was if God came through. If God answered prayer. He was pinning everything that he was, everything that he had, on the fact that God is who he says he is and that he's a prayer answering God. I want to say tonight that when we start drawing prayer circles, it often looks like an exercise in foolishness. But that is what faith looks like in action. Faith looks foolish. Faith doesn't always look as eloquent or as innovative or as intelligent as we would like it to. Faith takes risk. And foolishness is a feeling that Moses grew very familiar with throughout the book of Exodus. Because he had to feel foolish going before the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, and telling Pharaoh, let my people go. Not just let my people go, but God said, you need to let my people go. I'm sure he felt foolish raising his staff over the Red Sea because what if the water doesn't move? And he most certainly felt foolish promising meat to the entire nation of Israel in the middle of the wilderness when they were living off of manna. It was Moses' willingness to look foolish that resulted in the epic miracles throughout the book of Exodus. The exodus of Israel out of Egypt, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, the then the miracle of the quail. Because drawing prayer circles often feels foolish. And the bigger the circle you draw, and the bigger the thing that you trust God for, the more foolish that you'll feel. I'm talking about the kind of prayers that only God can answer. And it feels foolish. But in order 
to experience a miracle. Somebody write this down. This is in your series, God. If you didn't get one, raise your hand. Brother David will get you one. we got a few around. Somebody say, in order to experience a miracle, you have to take a risk. And one of the most difficult types of risk is risking your reputation. Honey already had a reputation as a rainmaker, but he was willing to risk his reputation by praying for rain one more time. He took the risk, and the rest is history. And I want to say this, that the greatest chapters in our life and in our history always begin with a risk. And the same is true with the chapters of of your life. Um, I I remember there was a time when I was pastoring just outside of San Antonio in Floresville, Texas, and... and, um, God spoke to me in the services. I've, I've told this story before. There was this big burly biker that came. I'd never seen him. He was standing in the back. And the Lord spoke to me. He's here because he needs healing. I mean, he looked healthy. He looked fine. He looked, he looked okay. In fact, he looked like the kind of guy that you're like, I'm just going to let him be back there in case he's mean. <laughs> and uh, not the kind of guy you walk up to and say, hey, God told me something and be wrong about it. You know what I'm saying? It looked like he would just as soon knock you out. And shake your hand. And so the Lord spoke to me. I was in the middle of service and he said, that guy is here for healing. And then, so I I got up and I I opened up. If you have a need for healing, raise your hand. He didn't raise his hand. I was like, well, God, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I I was wrong on that one. But I just kept feeling that. Well, altar call came and he kind of came and he stood at the edge. And finally I, I worked up the courage and walked over to him. And I told him, I said, man, I said, I don't know you. You don't know me. But I really feel like God is telling me you're here for healing. And he said, you'll never believe this. He said, I'm here from South Carolina. They released me from jail, uh, out of jail a couple of months early because I need heart surgery. And the surgeon that I'm going to is here in San Antonio. And that's what brought me back to this area. I, I had no idea. But understand this. You'll never know what God is capable of doing in your life if you're not willing to step out when you hear the voice of God. If you're not willing to take the risk, to look foolish, to step into the place, uh, you'll never be used in the gifts of the Spirit if you're unwilling to risk your reputation. Because if you don't take the risk, you will forfeit the miracle. You cannot build God's reputation if you aren't willing to risk your own. And if Moses was too worried that it wouldn't work out, he would have never gone to Pharaoh in the first place. If Moses was so worried that God wouldn't split the seas, he would have never told Israel to stand still and see the salvation of God. It takes a risk. It takes putting everything on the line. Prayer, hear me tonight, is not our backup plan. It's not the backup plan. It's the plan. And if God speaks a promise to you, don't just say, I'm going to tuck that back here and wait for God to do it. No. You've got to be a risk taker and say, you know what, God, I'm going to stand on your promise. Even though it doesn't make sense. Even though people think I'm crazy. Even though people are going to say things about me and people won't understand me. Lord, I'm willing to put everything on the line to have what you said belongs to me. Circle makers are risk takers. Moses had learned this lesson well, that if you don't take the risk, you're going to forfeit the miracle. How many miracles have we quit on because we were afraid that it wouldn't work out. Has God ever spoke to you to pray for somebody and you're like, oh, I think you're talking to the wrong person, Jesus. (laughs) God ever spoke to you and you said, well, if it's really true, God, (laughs) 
Then give me another sign. And he's like, I, I just told you. We test God. We do all these things. But listen, if we're not willing to risk, risk our reputation, then we will never be able to build God's. Because there comes a moment when you need to make the call or make the move. Because circle makers are risk takers. We're putting it all on the line for God. Listen, after 400 years of slavery, God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. But it's harder getting Egypt out of the Israelites than it is getting the Israelites out of Egypt. Despite the memories of slavery and the miracles of deliverance, they want to go back to Egypt. And here's why. Because they start thinking about the, the meals in Egypt. Anybody ever been on vacation? You got home, you just thought about that cruise you went on? Wouldn't it be nice to have a, a buffet just you know, off the living room like they have on a cruise? You start thinking back. Remember when we were eating good? <laughs> and now we're over here waiting in a 65-minute line for a Popeye's chicken sandwich? <laughs> Remember the days Israel's out in the wilderness and they're eating manna. God is giving them manna from heaven, but they get weary of the, the manna. And they begin to complain and, and say, oh, for some meat. We remember all the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and garlic that we wanted. And now our appetites are gone. And day after day, we have nothing but this manna. They were complaining. And instead of manna, they want meat. And their capacity for complaining is simply astounding because God had miraculously delivered them. And they're living every day on miracle manna from heaven. But despite their complaining, despite all that, God patiently responds to their tantrum with one of the most unfathomable promises in Scripture. He doesn't just promise a one-course meal of meat. But God speaks to Moses and Moses tells Israel that, that God is going to not just give you meat, but meat for a month. Listen, Numbers eleven twenty one. Moses said, the people among whom I am numbered, uh, uh, who I, whom I am, number 600,000 on foot. And you said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Can you hear the wheels grinding in Moses' head? Moses is saying, God, do you know how many of us are down here? This is the same God who knows the numbers on, of the hairs on your head. Let's just say he knows more about some of us than others. Amen. But, that's a bad joke. Um, but here they are, and, and, and Moses is saying, God, do you realize there's 600,000? Anybody ever had to feed, you know, 20 or 30 people the amount of food? My, my son brings two or three friends over. And, and we got one extra, or two extra people at dinner, and it's like, man, where'd all the food go? We thought we had plenty. But... God, God speaks to Moses and says, I'm going to give you meat for a month. And Moses says, there's 600,000 of us out here. There's 600,000 men on foot. And you said, I'll give them meat that they may eat a whole month. And he said, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Moses is doing the math and it doesn't add up. Not even close. He's trying to think of any conceivable way in which God can fulfill His promise. And he can't think of a single scenario in which it will work out. And he doesn't see how God can fulfill His impossible promise for a day, let alone for a month. But listen, God can manage it even when we can't measure it. Because He's the God with whom all things are possible. God can manage it when we can't measure it. And we know Moses' feeling because we've been there too. Like when God wants you to take the job that pays less, but it doesn't add up. Oh, let me push the ball or the envelope even further. 
Like when God speaks to you to start tithing. And you say, you want me to live on how much less, God? And it doesn't add up with the budget. When God wants you to go on the missions trip, but it doesn't add up. Or when God wants you to get married or go to grad school or adopt, but it doesn't add up. The predicament that Moses finds himself in reflects on another food miracle that happens in the Judean wilderness about 1,500 years later. There's a crowd of 5,000 listening to Jesus teach. And they've been there all day and they're hungry. And there are no eating establishments nearby. The Bible says that the disciples go through the crowd looking for food, gathering the scraps because Jesus has compassion on the crowd. He doesn't want them to leave. He wants to feed them. And out from the crowd comes an unnamed little boy with his brown bag lunch of five loaves and two fish. And it's a nice gesture. But Andrew verbalizes what all the other disciples must have been thinking. He said, what is so little among so many? Jesus, we did what you said. We went and searched the crowd for food, and all we've got is five fish and two loaves. And certainly, God, the math doesn't add up, Jesus. We can't feed all these people with so little that we have. It doesn't add up. You see... Like Moses, Andrew starts doing the math in his head and he sees all these hungry people. And meat for a day, that's a tall order. But God doesn't say, I'm going to give them meat for a day. He says, I'm going to give them meat for a month. And so not only does Moses see the crowd, but he sees the distance and the length of time and, and how much food. It's a fathomless number that it would take to feed this crowd of people. You see, in terms of addition, 5 plus 2 equals 7. If there's any math teachers in the house, you feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on that. But if you add God into the equation, 5 plus 2 does not equal 7. When you give what you have in your hand to God, God doesn't add to it. But He multiplies it so that 5 plus 2 equals 5,000. Not only does God multiply the meal that it feeds 5,000, but when they get done passing out all the food, the Scripture says that they take up 12 baskets full of fragments that remain. And so if you put what little you have in your hand into the hand of God, God won't just add to it. God will multiply it. And so while we're doing the math, God is saying, Do you realize who I am? I'm God. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The one who measures the earth, the, uh, the moon, the stars by the span of his hand. This is a God who's big enough to do it. A God who's big enough and able enough to do it. And for Moses, it's not adding up. But God thinks bigger than we think. Amen? God has a grander vision than we have. In verse 31... He says, then a wind, this, this is telling how it happens. It says, then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose, listen to this, all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered the least gathered ten homers. 
And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Here they are parked in the wilderness of Paran. I know that that doesn't mean a lot, but it's a region that is about 50 miles from the Mediterranean Sea and 50 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. The significance is this, that the quail tend to live by water and they don't fly long distances. They were living in an area where there was no quail. No quail hunters. No one out in the fields waiting for quail to pop up, right? Nobody's out there. There's no quail in this part of the world. And so uh, if it weren't for a supernatural wind from the west, they never would have come to where the children of Israel are. They were out of the quail zone. But what God does is God, Moses can't see what is 50 miles this way and 50 miles that way. He, he doesn't know what's outside of his little zone. All he knows is there's no quail here. There's no meat here. We don't have enough flocks. We don't have enough herds. We can't do it. God, I don't know how you're going to do it. But God sees outside of what Moses sees. And God sends a west wind that comes from the Mediterranean Sea and blows in a flock of quail, a, not just a flock of quail, a massive flock of quail to feed the Israelites. Listen, it was a meteorological miracle, but it wasn't just a miraculous west wind. That day the clouds burst and it rained quail from the sky. It rained quail. Think heaven's version of Angry Birds. You, you, you played Angry Birds where you pull the bird back and they come crashing in. People are walking out of their house and quail are coming out of the sky, skyrocketing. And people are getting dinged in the head. They're pulling their children inside. They've got, you know, umbra- uh, umbrellas and they're not working because they're not quail rated, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, quail are falling from everywhere. All around, the, they're wading through quail. They got their, their Louisiana mud boots on, well, uh, wading through all the quail. They can't move inches because quail are piling up around their feet. And, and listen, based on the Hebrew system of measurement, a day's walk was about 15 miles in any direction. We're talking about an area that's 700 square miles. 700 square miles. To put that into perspective, Washington, D.C. is 68.3 square miles. The whole city. Not only is that an area that's ten times larger than our nation's capital, but the quail were piled two cubits, which is three feet deep. Three feet deep over 700 square miles. Can you imagine seeing that many birds fly in the camp? I think it's safe to say they limited out that day. It's like a bird blizzard, or as the author calls it, Quail Mageddon. The cloud of birds is so massive that it seemed like a solar eclipse. One day, uh, one moment, they're happy outside playing in the sun, and all of a sudden the wind blows and the sun disappears behind this massive cloud of quail that's coming in. And once the quail stopped falling, the Israelites started gathering. Each Israelite gathered no less than ten homers. So ten homers multiplied by 600,000 men equals six million homers at a minimum. Now, a homer is roughly 200 liters, and assuming the quail are average size, it rained somewhere in the neighborhood that day of 105 million quail in the camp of Israel. 105 million. Listen, it doesn't have to add up. You don't have to be able to figure it out when you start praying for these things. 
If God promises it, and God speaks it, and God declares it, and God says it, you don't have to be able to figure out how God is going to do it, because God can see what you can't see. God knows what you don't know. And what He knows is that just beyond what you can see, that there's a place, there's a resource that He can tap into that you don't know how to tap into. And so God sends this west wind and rains a hundred fire. God doesn't just provide in dramatic fashion. God provides in dramatic proportion. God is able to bring to pass whatsoever He has declared. And when we can't see it, I love when my grandfather, we quote it often, when you can't track God, you just trust Him, Moses. When you don't know how God's going to do it, if God says it, you just believe it and you keep praying until it comes to pass, Moses. If God declared it, then you can stand on it, you can circle it, and you can believe it even if it doesn't add up in your head. Before the quail appeared on the Doppler radar, God asked Moses a question. And it's more than a question. It's the question. Your answer to this question will determine the size of the circles of prayer that you draw. Numbers 11.23 The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. You know what God was asking Moses? He's saying, Do you remember when I brought you through the Red Sea? Do you remember when you raised the staff and the waters parted? Do you remember when I sent frogs all over Egypt except for in Goshen? you remember that, Moses? you remember all those plagues? you remember when all the, the Nile turned to blood and all the water turned to blood in the land of Egypt? you remember all that, Moses? Do you remember how I showed you the tree at the bitter waters of Mary and I made them sweet again? Do you remember that, Moses? He said, is the Lord's hand shortened? Have I somehow lost my ability? What, what he's asking is he's saying, Moses, is there any limit to my power? Moses, did, did I somehow change overnight to where you think that I can't do what I've told you that I will do? God was asking Moses if his abilities had somehow diminished in the few short days since he had opened the Red Sea like a gate. He was probing the faith of Moses, asking him, is there any limit to my power? And the obvious answer to that question is no. God is omnipotent, which means by definition He's all-powerful. And that there is nothing that God cannot do. There's nothing that God cannot do. And yet, many of us pray as if our problems are too hard for God. We're like Moses and, and the wheels are spinning. Lord, I don't see how my family is going to be brought back together. I don't see how you're going to heal the wounds of our history. I don't see how my marriage is going to survive. I don't see how this business is going to live. I don't see how it's all going to work out, God. I don't understand. I know that you led me here, but God, I don't see how you're going to do it. So let me remind you tonight of this amazing truth that should lift your faith. God is infinitely bigger than your biggest problem or your biggest dream. God is so much bigger than the things that we're praying for. It's but a light thing for God to answer our prayers. It's, is my hand short, Moses? Is there any limit to my power? A.W. Tozer once said this. He said that a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God 
is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. Because we get so caught up in the mess and in the math and we can't figure it out that we start to limit who God is and what God can do. But as A.W. Tozer said, that a high view of God is a solution to 10,000 temporal problems. Because when we see God for who He is and not for, uh, and we don't reduce Him in size, we worship differently. All of a sudden, our problem doesn't weigh us down so bad that we come in here on a Sunday and we just don't know if we can worship God because our problem is no problem for God at all. And when you have a high view of God, it changes how you worship. It changes how you pray. It does, you're no longer begging God, oh God, if you just could. I love the prayer of the man in the scripture that said, Lord, if you will, he's a leper, he said, if you will, you can make me clean. He understood that the only thing standing between him and a miracle was not the ability of Jesus to do it. It was whether or not it was his will. And he said, if you will, you can make me clean. We need to get that attitude and that spirit about God again. That God is bigger than my problems. He's bigger than what I'm praying for. He's able to deliver. He's able to do, as the scripture says, exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think. In other words, your best prayer is no big thing for God. In Jamaica, we went there a few years ago with a family vacation, and, and they got a saying in Jamaica. If you've ever been there, you, you will remember this. They say, no problem. It's no problem, man. I quickly figured out when I'd asked for customer service from some of them that no problem meant it's your problem. Because <laughs> I'm not going to do anything. They'd say, no problem, and then I'd never see them again. <laughs> but... For God, it's no problem. It's just not a problem. It's just not an issue. And if, if God doesn't do it the way we think it, it's still not a problem. And if it doesn't happen in the timing we think it, it's still not a problem. God is able. Somebody say He's able. And so if, if that's really true, and I believe it is, then your biggest problem isn't an impending divorce or a failing business or a doctor's diagnosis. But in order to gain a godly perspective on your problem, you have to answer this question. Are your problems bigger than God, or is God bigger than your problem? Our biggest problem is our small view of God. And that is the cause of all lesser evils. It's the cause of our weak prayer life. It's the cause of faithless Christianity. It's the cause of people coming to church and not worship. I don't know why I keep getting on that. But I feel to say it's the cause of people walking into the house of God. They've got a low view of God. And so there's no worship because they're more focused on what's happening around them and in their lives than on this God who's bigger. Our biggest problem is our small view of God. And God asked Moses, is there any limit to my power? There are only two options. And that is yes or no. And until we come to the conviction that God's grace and power know no limits, we will draw small prayer circles. Once you embrace the omnipotence of God, you will draw ever-enlarging circles around your God-given, God-sized dreams. The scripture prophesied in the book of Joel that in the last days I will pour out of my spirit. And he said, your old men shall dream dreams. Amen. We need, we need to resurrect dreaming in the church. We need to stop being satisfied with small living. 
because of our small view of God. We need to resurrect the idea and the conviction in our heart and life that God is able to heal the sick. He's able to raise the dead. Listen, He's able to use you, yeah, even you, in the gifts of the Spirit. He's able to operate in the church in the way that He wants to operate. We need to stop limiting. There are limiting beliefs that we've been carrying with us that are stopping us from receiving what God has. And we've got to get past those limiting beliefs and start seeing God for who He really is. Because once you embrace the omnipotence of God, you're going to pray bigger prayers. With God, there is no big, there's no small, no easy or difficult. Possible or impossible. Because to the infinite, all finites are equal. So it doesn't matter how loud or how long you pray. It comes down to the answer to your question. Is there any limit to my power? Do we really believe that God is able? Do we really believe that He's able? I want to conclude with this last point. I'm going to hand it back to Pastor in just a moment. But the promises of God always come with a if-then proposition. An if-then. Perhaps tonight you feel like Abraham moments before he acted on God's promise. But everything that God had for Abraham was hinging on him taking the first step. And throughout the scripture we see this. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. If they will pray, then I will hear from heaven. It's an if-then proposition. God tells Cain when he's caught in sin. Cain, if, if you do what is right, then will you not be accepted? For Abraham, the if was that he had to take a step. Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show you. Hebrews tells us that Abraham, not knowing where he was going, obeyed the voice of God. Why? Because he didn't understand how God could deliver him this heritage. But he knew that God was big enough. He knew that God was able to supply the need. And so when God says, Go, Abraham went... He said, if you'll go, then I will show you a land. And Hebrew, uh, Hebrews tells us Abraham obeyed and went out not knowing where he was going. Get this, he had to take a step before he could see the destination. And when God gives a vision, this is the last blank for you to fill in tonight. He makes provision. We just need the courage to step out in faith when God is calling us. When Peter heard Jesus walking on the water and realized who it was. He said, Jesus, I want to come out on the water with you. All it takes is a step. And when we fail to step out in faith because we have a low view of God and we're not willing to risk it all, then we will forfeit the miracles of God. We have to believe that God is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the God that can send a west wind that brings a hundred five million quail into camp. He's the God who can do what we cannot do and He can make up for what we do not have. But here's the thing. Here's what I want to leave you with tonight. We must do our part. Somebody say, my part matters. We've got to do our part. And so the last question I want to leave you with on the second night of the Circle Maker is what is the step that God is asking you to take in faith? What is the boat that you need to get out of? 
what is the homeland that you need to leave. Your biggest dream depends on the faith that says, God is able and I am willing. God is able and I am willing. So Lord, if you're asking me to pray something, that's embarrassing. Lord, if you're speaking to me to go witness to somebody, God is big enough and I am willing. God is able and I am willing. And if we can get that conviction and step out in faith, I promise you we will see the miracles and the plans and the purposes of God fulfilled in our life and heart. Can we-